Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day, the world is changing, and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. Andrew Fowler, co-founder of Solutionary Minds joins me on this episode of Procurement Reimagined and shares her insights on navigating procurement in a turbulent and uncertain environment. She shares some common challenges and easy to implement workarounds. Andrew also shares how the performance of procurement professionals through the downturn can help them step out of the shadows and gain a seat at the strategic decision-making table. Andrew has over 15 years of procurement exposure and she has held procurement leadership roles at companies like Amazon and Vodafone. Andrew, I'm actually curious about your background because one role that jumped out was you were actually at Amazon for a bit and that's always intriguing. But yeah, could you just go into a little bit about your career and kind of what you're up to now? I would be happy to. So I think like most of us, I've started almost by accident a procurement career. I started in engineering. I did a lot of logistics at the beginning of my career. So the field was familiar. And then working in operations and maintenance, I ended up negotiating contracts because I became a budget owner. And from there, I grew the love, right, of engaging, solving for problems, finding solutions, having this overview and so on. So then when the global supply chain organization in in Vodafone was set up in 2007, I jumped on the opportunity. I left behind a role where I was very well paid and calmed and, you know, with peace of mind. (laughs) No, that's that's something that I want to do. So I started in 2007, the formal career in procurement, just in time for the recession. So that was a very hot entry. And then I evolved big part of my early career in technology because I had an engineering background. I'm a computer scientist with a major in finance. So it's something that I understood. So I was always drawn by tech and it was a world that I could relate to. And then I met fascinating people, right? That knew a lot of things and I could learn every day. And I'm a curious person and I I love speed and I love new so it kept me hooked, right? So one side, I had the learning and I did technology, always something happening. And the other one, it was that sense of personal contribution. So you can really make a difference. So technology grew traditional uh, as a career path manager, leader. I, I became a CPO type of role in Vodafone in Romania. And then I realized that's not the direction that I want. I can do it. It will not make me happy. So then I spinned, I reinvented myself and started to do a lot of things. So I did digital transformation, tactical sourcing, that's long tail program. So again, a transformation program, innovated a ton, build new solutions. I designed Ava in Vodafone, that's a automated sourcing solution. And then because I love this innovation space, and because I tried so many things in Vodafone, so somehow I maxed out in what I could do. I went to Amazon for a while and set up the base for their supplier uh, management, supplier relationship, innovation, and then decided it's time for me to go out. So that's my career and what drives me. Yeah, it's interesting on the Vodafone piece because they're kind of like early pioneers, aren't they, with that a separate business model for procurement. And we've seen BT with BT Sourced kind of go out and do it 
and they've kind of probably pushing what's possible there even further. So that's a really, really cool intro. Yeah. So very tech focused and non-traditional background, I guess, as well for a procurement professional. And to your point, you uh, you joined in 2007, really, into the profession, just as global recessions were starting. I'm just trying to think where I was at that point. I think I was just, I was at school, just finishing off school. It didn't really hit me too much about what was going on. I guess there was a slight <laughs> child naivety at sort of 14 or 15, I think I was back then. But you've kind of gone through one recession and now we're in probably what looks like to be an, a worse one. So how do we reimagine procurement during a recession period? I think it's valuable learning going through one. I know we can do it. So I have that inner belief that it's not something that is destroying you, but rather, especially for procurement, can create opportunities to grow. What I found works is in tough times, you are overwhelmed by a multitude of projects. So everybody suddenly has budget challenges, investment stops, reshuffling strategy. Things become very unclear. You don't know anymore what's very important. So this bubble, and we are in the middle of it because everything that a company invests goes through uh, procurement, right? And everything is reconsidered, it's on the table. What helps is to really ruthlessly prioritize because it's so much noise. Everybody in the organization, all the functions, being technology, sales, marketing, you name it, HR, they put pressure on procurement to solve a problem, right? So I think prioritizing and the way I I always prioritize is on impact, that's and ruthless. So I learned to say no in those times. I learned also not to optimize for everything. So in procurement, traditionally, you have an evaluation matrix. So you look at a lot of dimensions. It can be cash, it can be TCO, it can be return of investment, quality, pricing, you name it, right? When you have these complex evaluation processes, it becomes very easily distracted on what's important. And neither your partners, the suppliers that pass through the same problem in their organization are open to optimize with you for everything. So then it's important to clarify and sign off with a stakeholder what's important in that deal. Is it cash? Is it availability of supply? Is it me first? (laughs) What, What is going to make or break that deal for the company? So again, prioritizing on projects and prioritizing on what's important and not everything for everybody. So that I would say from a work perspective, right? So how do you manage your projects? Now, from a personal perspective, you can very quickly burn out and you can very quickly be even more in the shadows. So it's important to have a stakeholder that you engage and becomes your sponsor. So talks on your behalf and makes things happen, right? So that's another dimension that works very well to have somebody in the organization high enough to influence that you can go and make these hard choices happen because otherwise you're in a fight with no support. So that's from a stakeholder engagement perspective. And then from a management perspective, I was very lucky. I had a manager back in 2008 that didn't stand in my way. No time for micromanagement, no time to question everything. Just gave me the trust and space to run with my 
projects and then use him, he was a man, with as a sounding board, right? So I went when I had a challenge and I needed something to calibrate or get another opinion or something to move. So that worked very well. I think if you have also a controlling manager or on top of everything that's happening, it's impossible to cruise. So that would be my advice for managers is don't micromanage, just make room for your people. That's what I always advise, especially in these times. Yeah, yeah, really good points. I was just thinking about your your point around saying no. I think that's just such an incredible skill, isn't it? To be able to say no to people and do it in a way that doesn't upset them. If you're prioritizing the work that's going to have the biggest impact on your business, that suddenly becomes a lot easier to do so. Correct. And you go back to communication. If you say no without giving a reason, you will get much more reaction and emotional reaction. If you make it more a non-emotional evaluation, but you need to be able to communicate that. This is what's on my table. We need to be pragmatic. We have, you know, limitation of resources. I have to pick, otherwise nothing gets done. This is what I'm focusing on. What do you think? Help me. That works, especially when it is a crisis and it's not your choice, right? It's not something that you have created is not a bubble. Everybody understands. People are open. It's a matter of choosing, I think, the right negotiation, positioning and communication. And then it's a lot of work with ourselves. Saying no triggers many of our fears of not being liked, of not advancing. So as long as we recognize that this actually us that we work on first to be able to say no and be firm on it, then we can manage the other part. And working with clients now and also with my teams, it's very hard. It's a skill that you grow with a lot of difficulty because it's very emotional. Yeah, yeah, certainly. It's something I've tried practicing over the years, mainly because I heard Tim Ferriss say it repeatedly. across this podcast he's like I say no to pretty much everything and then that lets me just focus on what I want to do but it's easier said than done especially if you're a very wealthy person (laughs) who has that opportunity a bit different in a business environment Uh, one thing that got me thinking with everything you were saying there in terms of priorities in terms of what has the most impact in the business is it good to have some sort of plan in place for a defined period of time or is it more useful to be I almost want to say more agile, maybe not reactive because you still be proactive with that way of working. But during a recession, typically things are going to happen that disrupt potentially those plans. So it'd be cool to get your your insights there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complex question to a complex situation that deserves a, it depends type of answer. <laughs> That's fine. My personal approach in high complexity situations is to have a North Star and hold it, right? That's important. And then keep flexibility and adaptability to experiment, to try, to fail and react to the market conditions. So yes, having a plan. And that's pretty much how I approach majority of my high complexity project situations in life. I keep direction in mind. I always remind myself, why do I do what I do? What's the purpose of that project, situation, whatever, direction, and then keep adapting 
to what I see is happening. If you can nail that, it will save you for a lot of the worst it can happen, right? Because the worst it can happen is that you are dragged down, you are burned out, you forget why you do what you do. So then you derail a lot from the direction and you get lost or you don't do anything because you analyze, you know, analysis paralysis is, is truly, truly yeah. a reality. If you try to analyze and forecast everything that's happening and plan every step of the way, then again, you can end up not knowing how to plan. So that's how I would approach it. That would be, it depends type of situation. Yeah, I think it's a good answer, right? It's, I appreciate that it was a not the, the easiest of questions, but I think having, like you say, if your business in the first place has no staff that you're all working to, you know, along the way that some things are going to happen, just even outside of a recession period, right? That are probably going to prevent you in some way of doing it, how you first foresaw it. So yeah, that's a really cool way to look at it. I know you mentioned analysis paralysis and it kind of triggered my thoughts there about, you know, during a recession period and trying to get the most out of the actual recession period, but then afterwards where typically markets open up, they reemerge people out there buying things. Does data become a good friend of yours to go out and take advantage of when things hopefully, and they will always, uh, start to look a bit better? Yeah. Uh, yes. The answer is clearly yes. With the value of data and reliable data, and from now on for whatever project, business cycle, and this will grow. This is having already a momentum. Is We will have more and more and more data, more curated more made sense of a lot of AI to give us insights, foresights in, into it, where I think we are not at the speed of data and technology as human is acknowledging our biases and in making sense out of that. And I'm, I'm very much focused in, in human aspects because that's where my business is, is going, yeah. right? And I don't see the same speed of evolution as being able to draw the right conclusions and changing our mind in the face of new data and new data points and removing our biases. Because otherwise, it's very easy to use data to tell the story that you want to be told. That's what yeah. I learned. That's a really good point. Yeah, that bias, even if you're not aware of it, is something that I guess can plague every decision because everything you're doing is going to that view that you potentially hold. It could be quite basic, right? Like it could be a supplier that you don't like. And suddenly every piece of data you get about that supplier, you can engineer to say, hey, then they're really not a good fit yeah. for us. Yeah, you exclude data points that would be challenging your own assumptions and expectations. And unfortunately, nobody trains us on it. We don't talk about it in schools. We don't have any sort of mandatory training to understand ourselves. Uh, and our mind limitation, our mind has, the way the brain is, works, has its own limitations and nothing really prepares. I, I look at my kids and I look at the trainings that I've done very rarely. I was exposed to acknowledging bias and we have that also in gender diversity, any sort of diversity, cultural acceptance. We have a ton of things that we are not aware in our brain that says this is not my tribe, right? And from here, a lot of problems. So that's why I focus where I focus, because I think it sits as a root for many other things that will solve if this is solved. Yeah, no, there's some really good insights there, actually. And I think 
we're we're becoming more aware of this unconscious bias that we have but because it's unconscious <laughs> it's very hard to continuously think about it but you're right when we are exploring data that's a key one that we need to look at and um i know you at the start you mentioned that there's a lot of opportunity during a, a recession it's not all doom and gloom there's a lot of potential return on investment potential upsides for us i'd be interested to hear more of your thoughts on what opportunities there are particularly for procurement teams and businesses in general. Yeah. I think we don't need to look too much back to see what COVID <laughs> did or what COVID created as opportunities for supply chains, especially to go and be more valued. So I think the same thing will happen with the recession because suddenly all the organizations of the world look at their costs, cost structures, reprioritize, revisit their strategies, think of the products. And procurement is instrumental to all of that because you hold the market knowledge, you understand the trends, you understand the leverage that you have or don't, the power, the supplier, all the analysis that we do truly can create that competitive advantage for companies. So that's what I'm hoping and that's what I'm expecting will happen for procurement as a function following a recession. It's tough, right? We will be exhausted by the end of yeah. it. But then once more, we have that opportunity to shine and become truly business, even beyond business advisors. You are there to guide and shape the strategy of a company. So that's my bet. I think it happened and I saw it with me and the team that I was in and I led after the recession because we proved that we can do it. There are a brilliant ideas. There is value. You can do it at speed. And the relationship that I built with the stakeholders during that period led me into having an ex-co position and being accepted at the table because it was proven. It was not only <laughs> words and strategy and direction, right? So I think that will happen and will happen for the high performers and for the ones that can cope with everything that's happening and can really outperform it will happen naturally. And then for businesses, I think any times of downturns have that opportunity of cleaning up the bad players. And we see that in blockchain, in crypto, we see it in a lot of industries that businesses that are not built resilient are not surviving tough times. So that naturally happens. So I would expect we will see that more. And then when you have frugality, innovation sparks. That's another dimension, right? When you have suddenly you don't have any more so many resources as you planned, then human brain is we are an impressive machine, right? We have our faults, but we have our big, big pluses. You can get a new idea. How do you solve with less? So then I'm expecting a lot of innovation to come from this scarcity of resources uh, during a recession. So many more ideas coming faster, solving bigger problems. So that's my my expectation. So these are the opportunities. That's where we play. And that's, you know, at the personal level uh, also uh, good to keep an eye on. Yeah. So avoid burnout, build amazing relationships. And then the one that really rung true there, out frugality comes innovation. I really liked that. That was, that was cool. Uh, that was really nice. And uh, 
just uh, maybe a couple more slightly uh, less serious questions now, Andrew, because going from recession, it's quite a dark topic in some ways, isn't it? it? (laughs) For for us uh, in the professional and business. But I'm actually really intrigued as to what is one piece of tech that you could not live without? And this could be related to procurement work. Could you be like managing yourself? I'll leave it so open here. It could be something super big. It could be LinkedIn, for example. I I, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear. I think LinkedIn is growing close to a podium because I truly need it for for me. Even though I'm techy and geeky, I don't have a ton of addictions to tech, but for sure I have one and that's my phone. (laughs) So if there is one that, and now with my business, I can carry it with me get into calls, have access to information, get my way around, talk with the kids, whatever, engage, be there, be present. So I think that that proves a ton of value. So for sure, that's something that I would say. And the rest, the landscape changes dramatically. When you look at the procure tech landscape, right? Five years ago, there was nothing. Now, how many? 4,000. So mm, it's, it's my it, it is, and it's happening at scale outside. So when you look at the capabilities of no code, AI and creative industry, gig economy, a lot of marketplaces. So there will be more and more tech that adds value, but will survive less for less time, I think, because something else, something better will come along. Agree. So that's my expectation of the future. We'll have a more dynamic list if you want of favorites. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point that we'll see lots come and go a lot of innovation, a lot of turnover. It's going to be a wild next two to five years, I imagine. We'll just end this with maybe the weirdest question I'm going to ask you because I've never, I, and I've not said these words out loud yet. I thought it was a good idea when we, uh, we wrote it down. So imagine I'm a procurement genie and I kind of thought Aladdin vibes, but I'm not sure I'm feeling it now. You've got one wish about procurement. What do you want? To get stronger in a stronger position following the current crisis. And I think the second would be to learn the lessons that the recent history is giving us. So be in a better position to ride the next unforeseeable big shift that will happen faster. Potentially we'll get another one in this generation. We will be in a better, better position, us as humans. So that would be my wish. It feels like there's a... There's an event like that every two years now or so. I think uh, I saw, and I'll have to try and pull out the stat for the millennial generation that I sit in. It's almost like every two to three years, there's been like a generation defining event, but it's happened multiples for every decade. It's quite incredible. Andrew, that was amazing. Really enjoyed talking to you. Full of knowledge, uh, full of insights. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you for having me, uh, really. And good luck in your endeavors. I'm here to cheer and support and um, to create uh, this amazing community that I truly believe in. So thank you for having me. Thank you for what you're doing. You're great. Anytime. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www.gatekeeperhq.com. And then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, thanks for listening.